1: Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am an holistic nutritionist and professional cancer coach. Healthcare is evolving, moving from a system only designed to react to illness to one that considers and embraces prevention, a system that builds health rather than simply treating sickness. Our guest today is Dr. Megan Walker, and she is the author of Impact Medicine, which is a six step roadmap for clinical entrepreneurs aiming at building health globally that benefits both the practitioner and the patient. Dr. Megan Walker is a naturopathic doctor and anthropologist, which we will go into, anthropologist, yes, which we will go into, focusing on health and business optimization for clinician entrepreneurs and game changers. As an entrepreneur, Megan started and sold her first business while at university and is a co-founder and past CEO of the digital health media startup Bright Almond. Megan co-founded and sold her first clinic, the Integrative Health Institute after graduation from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, and went on to found and sell her second micropractice, Anthropology Performance Labs. She is currently the host of the podcast Impact with Megan Walker, co-founder of Health Hives and CEO and chief cheerleader at Clinician Business Labs, a platform to assist clinicians to scale and amplify their businesses. Megan is an award-winning speaker, having spoken on international stages through multiple media outlets on topics related to women's performance medicine, brain health, and entrepreneurship. Megan is the host and producer of the annual entrepreneur conference, Impact Lives, and most importantly, the bedtime story reader to her three girls. There's a lot covered in this show today. Things you'll take away from it will be what is impact medicine, how does impact medicine benefit both the practitioner and the patient, and what the new standard of care everyone should be asking about is. We will be back in just a few minutes to talk with Dr.
0: Megan Walker. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back everybody.
1: Today's show has been recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. We would love for you to follow us on our social sites, social sites. We are at Instagram, we are at the Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Megan, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Now I know I should totally start off with asking you about yourself and your career, but before I get to that and before people start Googling what Anthropologist is, anthropologist <laughs> is. You can help me correct my, my pronunciation of it and let people
2: know what it is. Cause I, in
1: fact, Googled it and it's not there.
2: No, I made the term up. Uh, <sighs> anthropology was a, anthropology. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, I was out for a run at the Bulletproof Conference in California uh-huh. and I was trying to figure out a way to describe like my interest in understanding and, and studying entrepreneurs and the journey that gets triggered and invoked, uh, when one steps onto that entrepreneurial, uh, treadmill, like the mindset piece and the health piece and the, this like entrepreneurial creativity. And I was out for a run and this concept of anthropology, uh, came to me. Um, and so I was like, that's it. I just made a decision that I was going to stick with it. And so I call myself an anthropologist, um, which is cool and interesting and you can't find it anywhere. The challenge with it is, is no one can pronounce it. Um, so like (laughs) you know entrepreneurship 101 your brand should be something that people can oh. pronounce and spell and it doesn't hit any of those marks but um it it really is a is a term that it sort of encompasses that study and interest in uh, entrepreneurs and truth be told, I've got it spelled out here phonetically as well. And I still managed
1: to Yeah. I
2: should do a whole podcast on the different ways people have actually uh, pronounced that word. Uh, do do as I say, not as I do. It's not exactly it's not a good rule. Well, I mean,
1: it's, it's a great word encapsulates everything that you do. Are you still practicing um, as a
2: as a naturopath? I'm not, you know, in uh, February of 2020 and normally the dates and years wouldn't matter. But in this case, obviously it does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Six weeks before most clinics in Canada uh, had to shut down, uh, I sold my practice. And um, I sold my practice because I was really at a a crossroads of how I wanted to continue to have the impact I wanted to have uh, in the world and couldn't hold space for all of the things. And so I've always been really clear that I am... Uh, more committed to my mission than the model or mechanism in which that happens. And my mission is to connect 30 million people in the next five years to root cause practitioners. Um, And I was just having difficulty continuing to build the infrastructure that I have in my business now to achieve that and see patients uh, one-on-one. So I sold my practice six weeks before the world imploded.
1: Uh, there are, you know, I know
2: a lot
1: of practitioners who have transitioned from practicing to supporting practitioners. Why is this the case, do you think?
2: Um, you know, I, I I think once, I mean, once you learn some of those, those tools, I can, you know, I can speak for myself in this, is that, you know, as I was experiencing success in my practice. And I've always been an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur before I started uh, practice. I've been really interested always in business and creating things to solve problems in my own life and others. Um, I had more and more of my colleagues who just, they were like, Megan, can you help me with my business? Can you help me with my business? And I started to do these meetups on Thursday nights online uh, where I would just like answer people's questions about their business. And then I realized there were themes. So I created this online course. Like I didn't set out to go, oh, I'm going to create a side hustle online teaching practitioners. It was completely by accident. Um, and then when I started to see, you know, how much more rapidly we could reach more people or or how, you know, honestly, like what the health of the practitioner, uh, like what was happening to the health of the practitioner when they started to get their finances in order and charge accordingly and, and manage their time appropriately and deliver transformation. Um, they were feeling better in their life. And I was like, oh, like this is this is the confluence of all the things I love to do. And so that was just a natural uh, it was a natural next step for me.
1: So are you only speaking about integrative health, or do you also work to support the medical community of practitioners?
2: Yeah, so our audience is really, I'm gonna just say is in the English speaking world. So we have a very strong foothold in Canada, the US, and then also Australia and the UK. Um, and certainly outside of the Canadian healthcare system, we have more physicians in our purview and in our programming. Um, but we have a growing number of Canadian physicians who are highly specialized, burnt out, um, and really come to us because they are curious about how they can work within their regulations, but reach people in more innovative ways, which is, is sort of our sweet spot. So we're having a growing number of physicians even here in Canada, which is actually just, it's really exciting. It's really fun work.
1: Well, you know, we're hearing about burnt out physicians, burnt out practitioners more and more. I've done a, a whole show devoted to um, the burnout in the medical space. Why is this happening and why is it essential in your, um, you know, from your vantage that we need to make a solid shift?
2: Yeah, I think the cause of the burnout is different depending on the system in which someone operates. So I will certainly say, like, cash based allied health practices, and I'll use Canada as an example. I mean, there's there's burnout there happening because the business model itself is actually quite a challenging business model. People don't have diversified income streams, or they're either super busy, um, and don't have the the infrastructure the traditional system has to support them, uh, or they're not busy enough, and so they've been in school for ten years and have you know student loans and all of these pieces, and they can't necessarily afford the help to enable them to start to scale. So there's some real challenges with the the model on the Allied Health side. And then when we look at the traditional side, um, and there's certainly overlap at a granular level, but if we start to look at the traditional side, you know, in addition to practicing medicine, we're asking so much or nursing or I'm just using, you know, broad strokes here. In addition to asking people to practice how they've been trained, we're asking them to like take on huge amounts of admin tasks We're we're living in a much more litigious environment. So the note taking and the charting and the detail that is required after every patient act interaction is is onerous. And the physicians themselves are not charged a lot for the time they have to spend with with patients because there is such a lack of innovation around how we deliver information uh, two patients, Um, you, you know, you need more than five minutes with them, but to cover your overhead and what the compensation model looks like, you have to see 50 patients a day. So I, you know, I have some of my physicians who are in our programs, they're literally seeing 50 to 75 patients a day. Well, you know, they're compromised because they're not providing the kind of care they actually want to provide. They bringing home all of the the work and the charting on the backside of that experience. And there's only more and more being demanded of them every day. They're just not compensated uh, for the amount of themselves that they are being asked to give to that job, notwithstanding COVID or any of those other pieces that mm-hmm. were just like stress on top of that precariously placed, uh, you know, card tower. Um, we're, we're just asking so much of those individuals in a very poorly resourced system.
1: Do you think COVID was the the grand pin in the balloon?
2: Well you know I think what covid did and and I've written a fair bit about this during the pandemic and it, like speaking frankly our society wasn't healthy to start with you know, we, if we look at our, our healthcare as a, as a, I'm going to just talk Canadians here for a second, but we could apply this to, to really almost every developed country in the world. If we look at how we manage our healthcare system, we kind of manage it like a credit card. And all we do every month is we go, let's pay off the minimum. Um, and, but increase what we're trying to get out of what we need to buy with that card. And then COVID happened, uh, and we couldn't pay off the minimum anymore. Suddenly we actually had to buy six months worth of supplies on a credit card that had no credit limit. Um, and so we just we hit an absolute wall and the, and the things that you know we were asking of physicians and the things we were asking as of a society at that point we're all from this place of like complete and utter uh desperation as opposed to acknowledging hey we have a really unhealthy population to start with we do nothing around uh, health promotion broad strokes um to look at metrics really you know like the things that are costing our healthcare system are are chronic disease. They were costing our healthcare system before COVID. We just literally had no room on that credit card anymore. So I think it was just like any system. You test the strength of a system by applying some level of pressure. And COVID wasn't like a little bit of pressure. It was like dropping a a cement block on a toothpick tower and then being like, oh, it can't handle the weight. Um, so there are so many things that need to be addressed, but it has to start from a leadership perspective, acknowledging that the people you serve aren't inherently healthy to start with. and we we really need to look at some solutions there adjacent to others. So if we want to look at it in a
1: positive light, we can call uh, the (laughs) pandemic a breakdown of a system giving us an opportunity to build up a stronger one. And we'll look at it from that point of view, which then leads us us into your premise and your push for impact medicine. And what do you mean
2: by that? Right. So, you know, we When we look at this system and, you know, and it doesn't matter whether they're talking about an individual or a society, usually we have to come to an inflection point of crisis before we go, okay, wait a second. Like, what are we doing here? We, if we can kind of get away with things, we try to get away with things as long as we can, so we can't manage it anymore. So yes, COVID was that thing. And you're absolutely right. There's massive opportunity here. The thing I talk about when I talk about this concept of impact medicine is it starts with acknowledging the standard of care and the way we care for people and the vocabulary of care that exists in the traditional system. So I am not, I'm not poo-pooing the traditional system. I'm not saying it's bad. My husband's a traditionally trained physician, Um, but I think we have to recognize the limitations of that system, that system that's under pressure. And so what I usually describe as the standard the traditional system is trying to get people to is the standard of fine. And when I say the standard of fine, I'll give you a little bit more context because this is where everyone's like, oh, totally. You, you, you're you not feeling great. You go to your physician. They run blood work for you and they are, and you go back and you talk to them about it and they go, well, you know what? I'm not really sure why you're tired. You're probably just stressed because I looked at your blood work. You're fine. We have a patient who finishes um, or goes on a biologic for their autoimmune disease and their symptoms go away, but the cause of it has not been addressed at all. And they go back to their doctor and they go, well, what can I be doing? So it doesn't come back. And they'll say, oh, well, you don't have symptoms you're fine. Or we finish with a round of chemotherapy for a patient and they are now declared cancer-free and, and they're ready to go. And they ask the physician, well, what do I do now to like decrease the incidence of it coming back? And they go, don't worry, you're fine. So we use this word fine as sort of the standard. And what happens is we are literally dumping millions of people who are curious around what happens beyond fine and we don't have resources for them. And what happens beyond fine, that's where we actually build health. That's where we pay down the debt on the credit card. That's where we hand people tools to add to their own longevity, to decrease their own inflammation, manage their own blood sugar. Like this is where people get to take ownership of their health and we have zero infrastructure there. So I call this the line of fine And the type of care that happens on the other side of fine, I call that impact medicine and impact medicine is just a system of care that we have designed for and say allied health practitioners predominantly because the traditional physicians usually don't have time uh, in their schedule to deliver it. But it's a system of care to help educate people and deliver strategy to move people even closer to health, to elevate that Uh, elevate that standard of health. And one of the contentions in my book, which is called Impact Medicine, is that the system that manages illness is poorly equipped to build health. And so what I've really designed here and laid out as a roadmap for practitioners here is a system to build health for your patients and ultimately build a system for a sustainable business. And why does this need to be practitioner-led? It doesn't entirely need to be practitioner-led. So, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to health, we have a, patients in and of themselves have been trained to look to a professional to convey health to them. One of the challenges I, I always observed this in practice was like just how hard it is to break people out of this mindset that they actually could have complete ownership of their health, that they are their they are their own doctor. They kind of look at you like you're crazy. They go like well, I know but what what should I take? Like we just we outsource this part of ourselves. And so I think there's massive opportunity. For health consumers, as I call them, or patients, or like people, uh, to be able to take control of their health. But that isn't going to happen just because you want it to. There is. There's education that is required for that to take place. There's trial and error, like the the look on someone's face when they make some tweaks to their diet and feel better for the first time in their whole lives and realize they have total ownership over that, that unleashes and unlocks a whole new set um, and series of, of curiosities and interest in going deeper around your health. So it doesn't have to be practitioner led. There's lots of places within that ecosystem uh, where we create programming where practitioners can facilitate group programs and other things that are that are patient led or person led, um, but I I do think that there needs to be some leadership around that. There needs to be some context and some guidance um, so that people kind of know where to go. They don't people don't know what they don't know, and most of us haven't been trained to be our own doctors. It's going to take a little bit of work.
1: Well, to me, the elephant in this room is the fact that to get to that level of care it's going to cost you. And in Canada, we are still not used to, I mean, I'm a practitioner and one of the, I don't know, I'm sure that you see this with other practitioners, what to charge, feeling guilty charging. I mean, people just aren't prepared at this point from my vantage to go all in and pay for what they need to manage their health. Is that something that we need to really address?
2: Yeah, I would say this is, uh, by and large, not a uniquely Canadian issue, but we see it in Canada across every socioeconomic group because of how we have been conditioned to interact with healthcare. Uh, So yes, we we definitely need to acknowledge that that elephant in the room. Um, You know, I had a patient once who came to me and he very kindly but emphatically said you know I appreciate this plan that you've laid out for me um, but he said it will be cheaper for me to have my bypass surgery thank you Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, carry on and enjoy that, enjoy that route. He had the means to be able to uh, pay for what it is we were outlining, but he literally was the byproduct of he had been trained that I will take the free health care and nothing more. And so part of it, I think, actually stems from we need to to call out and start to have a discussion around what this line of fine is and the standard that people are being left at. I also contend that we reach more people not by systemically lowering our prices, but by innovating our model of care. Mm -hmm. So right back to this idea that you threw down before, like, does it actually have to be practitioner led? It does not at all. I mean, you can create an online program and sell it for twenty nine dollars. That's a price that is going to be accessible to most people. But most, you know, one of the things that we need to acknowledge and empower people around is, you know, you can either invest your time or you can invest your money. And if you want to save a little bit more time, you're going to have to invest a little bit more money. As a society, we have to also then come to grips with and start to have a look at this idea of like, what is the standard of health that we want our system overall to be delivering? What do we want to be responsible for as taxpayers? What's the taxpayer standard? And if we want to start to define what's possible beyond that, some of the models in which people are going to be able to access and reach it. I'm really aware that what I don't want is for better health to be only available to people mm-hmm. who fall into a particular uh socioeconomic group. But I think through innovation and starting to teach people uh, different models, I used to run a group program in Regent Park for new Canadians on how with, you know, ethnic diets, they could have, they could be, you know, experiencing a hypoallergenic diet. How do we mitigate inflammation through food? We ran this as a free program and it was full of people. It was amazing. So we would have discussions around diabetes. We'd have discussions around autoimmune conditions and we'd be modifying it for all of these like different diets. It was so, it was like so challenging for me because there's foods I didn't even know of, but there's, there's lots of room to bring health, uh, to bring health to people. Um, and I do believe that there's a systematic way of being, um, being able to do that, but you're right. It's, I mean, it's a big challenge. We can't solve all of the problems all at once. Going beyond the economics of healthcare, the true essence of,
1: to me, you know, following you and understanding what you're saying. If we equip people with the proper knowledge and questions, I think we can move healthcare towards a model that you like. I mean, it's only, it might be only a couple of steps, but I think if people start to ask questions that they need answered, then there's going to have to be an adjustment at some phase. I um, I went through chemotherapy and radiation 12 years ago. And in that span of time with me working with people, I have seen a change because, it, you know, when you're really sick, you, you try and get to different areas of health, you really try and build a solid house. And that means pulling in people and pulling in practitioners, that you normally wouldn't do. And I've just seen with practitioners, with the doctors within the health space in the 12 years where I was in there to now, people have been asking questions and now doctors are actually offering some things that were never offered to me as far as knowledge within an integrative line of thinking. Is that the
2: true essence here? Yes. And that's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm having conversations with physicians, I feel like I'm like, oh, we sound like divorced parents trying to find like the best option for our kid. Like there's just this refusal to kind of see each other's uh, each other's side and where there's been uh, where there's been real breakthroughs and physicians who are like, OK, like, teach me. Like mm-hmm. their their jaw just hits the floor at what's. I'll talk about naturopathic medicine because that's my background for a moment. But like they they're literally like this is unbelievable. I had no idea this was was possible because that you know they had been receiving a message and they had been receiving uh, a a narrative and they are too limiting. They are limited in the in the tools they have access to. Mm-hmm. I've got pharmaceuticals and no time. So, when you, when you only have a few tools in your toolbox, you get really good at leveraging those tools. As a naturopathic doctor, I have infinite number of tools and loads of time. And so, I I get to play around with the achievement of health through a different means and mechanism. And so, you know, it starts with us having conversations. And I want to give a massive shout out to uh, my friend, Dr. Quadro Kiramenting. And he is a ICU physician in Ottawa, uh, works with the Ottawa Hospital. And he is obsessed with what uh, can happen in the allied health space to support patients. He texted me a few weeks ago. He's like, Megan, do you know how terrible the care is for menopausal women? And I was like, Yes, I do. He's like, <laughs> we're going to do something about it. He's like, this is unconscionable. Like he's just, I feel like he's just like, you know, ripping the layers off of, uh, his own understanding of, of what allied health can do to help support his patients. And like every day his, his jaw hits the floor. Um, he's like, we're, we're changing the diet of our ICU patients with diabetes and we're stabilizing their blood sugar without medication. He's like, I didn't even think this was possible. So, you know, I think sometimes we actually, we just have to see it to believe it. And if, and if, you know, the allied health space thinks all doctors are bad. And if all doctors think the allied health space is just like throwing around crystals and woo, um, then we are never going to find common ground. And the common ground is where we find confidence. The common ground is where we move into our solution oriented brain as smart individuals. The common ground is where I really actually love to, uh, love to hang out. Everyone has to give a little bit. Um, but the, The people who win in that uh, are the patients. It's all the people who are going to otherwise be dumped at the line of fine.
1: Absolutely. And you know what? You just take that ice pick and you keep chipping away at it and chipping away at it because I do see progress and it takes people like you to do this. Everyone, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to talk
0: more about this. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Piasi. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Megan Walker, author
1: of Impact Medicine. Let's continue on because this is going to lead us right into you, the listener, and where your place is in this space. Now, if we had doctors who were willing to see the light like your Ottawa ICU doctor doctor, and then, you know, we all have our lane, right? I'm a nutritionist. I'm not going to meander into a different area that is my line if we could if we could get to a point where there is this common ground and where patients can be saying what do i need for a diet and the doctor can say i don't do that but this person does to me that's the holy grail when you can get handshaking is that the ideal of what impact medicine should be
2: yes and for any of these things to become successful and sustainable. Uh, we also have to recognize that this needs to be a frictionless movement. So is you know it starts with let's create this common ground and let's have you know the network of of allied health practitioners who have a network of traditionally trained practitioners and we all get along great. Now let's create efficiency in how we communicate with respect to patient care. So, you know, sometimes we have to just like focus on the granular pieces. And this is so relevant to listeners who care about health, because these are the kinds of things that when we look at fixing the healthcare system, it's sometimes the small solutions that would make things easier. So like, for example, there aren't Allied health practitioners currently, let's just say in Ontario, because it's different by every jurisdiction, uh, who have access to the medical records of patients. In fact, there's like eight steps and fax machines involved to be able to share patient information back and forth. Well, we, you know, right at the beginning, we were talking about physician burnout on one side, and we were talking about lack of resources and admin support on the other. As soon as there's eight steps to move through to be able to refer people back and forth, it actually becomes an untenable thing from a financial or energetic perspective for anyone involved. So part of it is, yes, it has to start with the inclination. And yes, we have to be open to sharing ideas. And then, yes, we actually need to make sure the simple cross-communication that needs to take place within our healthcare system at large, but also between these, these different cohorts of care providers, that actually needs to be a priority in the conversation. And even if some of those pathways are already well entrenched, we we need to be mindful of the fact that what takes really good intentions and derails it sometimes are actually the implementation logistics. And so, you know, that's one of the pieces that I, you know, it's so boring and not great podcast content to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something we need to acknowledge that for these really great ideas to actually work, we've got to make it easy on both sides. So what would you
1: say would be the common thread tying a practitioner to a patient where, you know, your book is meant for everybody, I think, because I think as a patient understanding what could be and a practitioner understanding what should be, there is a real tie here. What do you want patients and clients of practitioners to come
2: away from with from your book? Yeah. So the number one thing I want everyone to acknowledge is that this idea that the system that manages illness is ill-equipped to deliver health. And as soon as we do that and sort of start to see, oh my gosh, there is this line of fine. There is this low standard. What we do is we understand, as you said, everybody's lane. And when we understand what everybody's lane and job is, we're suddenly not resentful towards our physician because he won't create a new meal plan for me. And we respect and understand what our other practitioners are supposed to do in terms of delivering us with health. That matters because that actually changes the quality of interaction that you have with all practitioners across your care team. It also enables you to start to segment and understand where am I supposed to pull my, my care providers from? You know, simple language is in like, you know, nutritionists or naturopathic doctors are alternative healthcare practitioners. Well, listen, like I'm not an alternative to, uh, I was gonna say bypass surgery, but I already used that. I'm not an alternative to chemotherapy. You're gonna need your oncologist and you're gonna need your mm-hmm. family doc and you're gonna need some of the diagnostic um utilities that the traditional system has. And also, I'm going to be able to pick up where they left off. So really understanding the framework and on what side of that line of fine your practitioner lives in, I think is a really important starting point. The other element is, and if I could get people to just take one thing away in general, it's around this notion of self-advocating for not only the care you want to receive, but the outcome that you are desiring. So, you know, I will hand this opportunity back to patients and say, you can also set the standard for fine in your own life. So if you're working with a physician or you're working with a naturopath, it doesn't matter what side of the line we're talking about, you have an opportunity to like up the ante on what your version of fine is. You can articulate that you are dissatisfied with where you have been left off, that you want something better. Um, but the traditional system does respond extremely well to self-advocacy, which often, again, is correlated with heightened levels of privilege. So I don't want to not acknowledge that uh, piece. But I really you know, I really want to encourage patients to be able to speak up for what it is uh, that they would like with respect to their health. I had far too many patients in my practice who would say, oh, I love that I can come here and say whatever I need. But, you know, I'm not going to go off any of those medications that I'm having all these side effects from because I just I'm so, you know, I'm scared to talk about it with my doctor. I was raised to never question anything my doctor did. And, you know, my experience in the system is actually that, you know, physicians, when approached as a human, uh, are open to having uh, having these types of of conversations. It should be a red flag for you uh, if your care provider is not interested in hearing the value of the other side of the line. Um, and so that's you know that's part of it is asking your practitioner what is your perspective on this. Are you open to this collaborative piece? I'm highly invested in my health and I'm really excited about the ownership that I have. I want to make sure that's okay with you. And someone says that's not okay with them, but, I mean. I, that's I'm gone. I'm out that door. Um, I'm, I'm not sticking around uh, for that. So you want to have professionals in your life who are in, aligned with your values. And I suspect for all your listeners, health is one of their key values. So you've got to make sure your provider is going to support you in a matter that is uh, is in alignment with where you want to go.
1: I think one of the key things that you should be looking for as well, one of them, is limiting factors of your doctor. Uh, you can only get this well. You can only go this far. Uh, terms, times, all those things. If we change that mind speak, if we if we you know, bedside manner perhaps is maybe the best way to cover code it. Um, if we can look more opti- optimistically, and and this starts with a practitioner who is wide open. Also starts with a practitioner who's not burnt out. Um, mm-hmm. So many different things. Do you think one of the key concepts moving forward in healthcare will be
2: moving away from the one on one practice? I think we have to acknowledge that one-on-one practice is the most time and financially inefficient way of delivering care. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: and you know, there is a role for one-on-one practice on both sides of the quote-unquote line of fine, but there are huge amounts of research at all levels and and you know timelines of of healthcare uh, that speak to the benefit of group care. For example, um, like we get better outcomes. The studies are pretty unequivocal about this. You get, you get, uh, better outcomes with diabetic patients at managing glucose and compliance when you put them in a group program than when you have them working with a practitioner. Uh, one on one. Um, uh, talk about new moms and the kind of support new moms need. Like there's so much room for the traditional system to incorporate uh, innovative care delivery models and more efficient care delivery models. We have to acknowledge that one of their they're, you know, they're they're managing what, you know, professional unions want to have and who they don't want to have and how they want to set up uh, these appointments. They are managing, Uh, You know the risks that accompany us living in a litigious society where people are suing hospitals for negligent care. I mean, there's a lot of naysayers to how some of these models could get uh, rolled out. It's back to we need to just really facilitate this army of people who are like, if there's a will, there's a way. Like, let's find five lawyers who are solution oriented around these pieces and, and let's start running some trials in some hospitals so we can measure the outcomes and understand what things we need to do to deploy these things at large. All of this is going to start with um with there being a cohort of people who are like, I'm ready to step up, I'm gonna take the lead on this. And then yes, we're absolutely gonna start to see some real shifts. But one-on-one care, holy smokes, that is costing it's costing all of us as taxpayers mm-hmm. like just so much money.
1: And when your your practitioner is burnt out and your practitioner is frustrated, it's gonna permeate into quality of care. They're just, you know, they're humans. There's sure. just no, there's just no question about that. But I find that a lot of people are hesitant towards uh, group medicine, group practice. But, you know, this is not just coming to a room and having 40 people sit in a room and being um, educated on a particular topic. There are also, I mean, it, they're everywhere now. There are streams of online group sessions that are um, completely online. Uh, you don't have to be seen. You can buy a program do you consider this also one of the key movers going forward is creation content and delivery-based medicine?
2: Yeah, I talk about really four stages of, of um, patient movement in my impact medicine system. And one of the first places as individuals are looking to really take ownership of their own health, the first place they're going to look is, how do I do this on my own, right? We, we have, again one, we've not only really been taught how to be in community and be vulnerable at the same time. It's this like Western world thing. There's just like, we have this, you know, we posture in a community where we're not vulnerable in community. We literally just don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so asking people to come be in a group program where we're going to talk about like what you ate and didn't eat and your bowel movements and like your skin stuff. I don't know. We're throwing all the things together. People are like, there's, you couldn't pay me to go and do that. So, you know, we have to ease people into these elements. And so, you know that that first stage of like awareness for people, where we're getting people excited about their health, this should all be free. I mean, this is happening every day on social media. I I love the potential of social media to deliver like really cool, actionable, investigative, satisfy someone's curiosity about their health uh, strategies. It's not going to change their entire life, but it's going to get people going. And so once we move from that, and I call this the aspirational phase, we move into something I call the empowerment or the DIY phase. And this is where people are just a little bit more curious, but definitely not ready to sit in a group program. And in many cases, you know, for the kind of work that I used to do and that you do, Kathy, like when we ask some, we think it's this huge value proposition that you get to spend an hour and a half with us and talk about every facet of your health. I think we need to recognize that for huge numbers of patients, the thought of sitting across from someone one-on-one and talking about what you eat or your childhood trauma or your bowel movements is like a fate worse than death. They're going to avoid that at all costs. So alternatives to that, are definitely like read a book or do an online program. You can try things out in the privacy of your own home. You can see what happens when you take gluten out. You don't have to worry about someone asking you how it went, you don't have to feel judged by it. You can just sort of tinker. So the online course world and the ability to leverage uh, online information and deliver it in creative ways, I think this is gonna be amazing and is amazing for people who are starting out on that journey. But once we've gotten to a certain threshold where we've hit a wall, this is where in that impact medicine system, there's some different places that people can go. Some people at this point have gone, listen, I've tried all these programs, I've read all these books, I'm still stuck. I'm, you know, the, that eczema is just not going away. Well, this is a really great time to book a one-on-one appointment so that that person is not spending eight months giving you information. That person's going to immediately move into strategy mode and strategize how to solve the problem for you. They will likely uncover individualized things you wouldn't find in a book or an online program. Um, And it will be safer at that point for you to work one-on-one with somebody. The other place where we start to move, like when we talk about this idea of a group group, of a group program is again, either someone can move at this point into working one-on-one with a practitioner, or this is the point at which we move them into a group. We have a group for people with really stubborn eczema. Everyone in the room is at the same place you are. Everyone in the room did that same online course. Everyone in the room wants the same outcome as you. Well, now we have a little bit more of an inclination uh, to explore uh, what's possible when you put people in the group. It's hard to get people into groups. It's hard to wrap people's head around it but the data related to the outcomes that are achievable in groups in many cases far outweigh what is possible through one-on-one practice. Mm -hmm. It's just getting people
1: to buy into it, to take that first step. Now, obviously your work is centered with practitioners. So let's focus on that a little bit. Are you working one-on-one with practitioners that just go against the whole model we talked about here? (laughs) Or is it uh, it a group? How do you work with, with practitioners who want to upscale and go into this impact medicine model?
2: Yeah, we have a variety of ways that we work uh, with them. I very occasionally will take uh, one-on-one clients, and that's usually when we're looking at deploying some sort of advanced strategy with respect to um, healthcare. Um, But uh, for the most part, we have a mastermind program that we move practitioners into. We have accelerator programs um, that we move practitioners into. And we really first start by acknowledging where they are at Uh, in their business. And so I kind of, I sort of put this akin to like swimming. And when you first start out, it's like you kind of jump off the boat, you're so excited, you like land in the ocean, you're like, this is gonna be amazing. And then you realize you're like, oh, shoot, I, I don't even have a ladder to get back in the back in the boat. And so it's sort of the sink or swim phase, you are learning everything about business in an accelerated manner, no one told you really, you had to be a business person, Mm -hmm. um, in addition to being a practitioner. And this is where some of the foundational pieces need to be put in place. And then I say to most people, you know, once we once we've thrown you that lifeline, you've got your life jacket on, you're like, okay, like, I'm not going to drown in this ocean. The next thing we need to do is we actually need to teach you how to swim. So bobbing around in the ocean isn't actually going to move you in any direction. Now we need to get you to swim and let's, let's have you swim towards somewhere safe. So one of the things that's really high risk, and I think it's important for, you know, health consumers to understand this when they're like, why is it so expensive to see a naturopath or a nutritionist? Um, it's because it's actually really high risk to see people one on one. It's high risk financially. So people will come. They won't necessarily come back. You spend time creating. Uh, protocols and treatment plans for them. And you know, you might never see them again, you have spent countless years in school to earn your credentials. So there's, there's a lot of financial risk that you carry in that traditional model. So part of my goal when I work with practitioners is how do we mitigate risk as quickly as possible, you'll be a better practitioner when you're not uh, scared all of the all of the time. But again, it's back to this idea of innovating your offering. It's having more offerings. So when we start to teach people how to swim, what we start to do is we teach them how to deliver transformational care and move away from transactions. And this is where we have a few uh, programs that are accelerators for you. We teach people how to create their own signature care system, for example. Uh, we teach them how to implement some level of operations in their own practice, how to manage the money in their own practice, how to define the niche that they want to have. This is learn to swim stuff. And where I'm getting you to swim is towards a beach. And the reason that I picked the analogy of a beach is because if you swim towards a beach, you can put your feet down on solid ground. And this is sort of the third phase that we work with practitioners on. I call it the beach party. Um, But this is where we go, okay, listen, we helped you define your niche. We help you create this um, transformational care system. Now, one of the things I want you to do is I w- I want to point out to you that there's probably eight to 10 revenue streams that we could start to deploy for you now that you have that focused population you're working on and that signature approach to care, that transformational approach to care that we can look at starting to deploy. And that's where our masterminds come into, uh, start to come into play. So my, my goal for practitioners, and this might not be what you want as a practitioner, but My goal for practitioners is we get them to a place where we are lessening their risk. We're innovating their offer so that they're able to uh, reach more people and we're expanding what's possible for them in terms of their income.
1: And I think it really behooves a patient or a client to understand this process too. I don't think there needs to be anything shrouded in secrecy. I think that the more open we are about this, the process the practitioner has, um, the more the patient will appreciate uh, what is being sent their way and have an understanding of where that, why there might be a cost involved for additional help. What you're doing, I think, is groundbreaking. I think that It's going to be so apparent your impact when we look back in another few years on on what you're doing, because I think it's a key piece to health. Um, And I in my own specialty, there's no getting away from nutrition, from the emotional space of of cancer. You need all these pieces. And there's no reason that these pieces should not be involved in other areas of health. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.